Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Simon Brown. Kunz from Kunz from Bridge Stockbrokers joins me this evening to guide us through all the latest news on global markets. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Yolanda Nordea from Citadel to discuss the Peregrine Global Multi-Strategy Equity Fund. All that coming away shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making headlines. In company news, quarterly profits surged at two of the U.S. biggest banks. J.P. Morgan's trading revenue grew by 13%, helped along by loan growth, while Citigroup's net income rose 16%. Revenue, however, missed the market, growing by just 2%, while earnings per share topped estimates coming in at $1.63 against an expected $1.56. The results from both banks, both banks were also boosted by the strengthening of the U.S. economy. Staying with quarterly results, PepsiCo's investments in its snacks business paid off in the latest quarter. Sales for its Frito-Lay snacks division, which makes Doritos tortilla chips, and Cheetos grew for the second straight quarter, compensating for the sluggish sales of beverages. The Frito-Lay snack business grew 4%, while beverage sales fell 0.9%. The overall earnings, however, beat Wall Street expectations. And German car makers, including BMW and Volkswagen, have inked partnerships with Chinese companies. The deals come after Trump threatened to slap tariffs on foreign car makers to stop flashy German cars from flooding the American streets. Here's more on that. Germany and China's car industries are set to become more intertwined, with a visit by Chinese Premier Li Keqiang to Germany cementing several new deals. Volkswagen has agreed to work with China's Four Group and the Chinese Car Research Institute on new vehicle technology, and German carmaker BMW has signed a deal with China's Baidu, allowing it to join Baidu's autonomous driving platform Apollo as a board member. We went on a little drive together and we both made it back in one piece. We have understood that it's important to develop the technology, which ensures that the car detects obstacles and objects. The partnerships between the Chinese and German car companies comes at a time of impending trade wars. Last month, Trump threatened to impose a 20% tariff on all EU-assembled cars, and a new survey from Zoo Research Institute has found that mood among German investors slumped in July to the lowest point in almost six years. Economic sentiment fell over eight points this month. Analysts say despite some promising news about industrial production, incoming orders and jobs data, investors have been spooked by political uncertainty and the potential intensifying trade war with the US. Nick Kunz from Stockbridge Stockbrokers joins us. Nick, thanks for joining us in studio. Next kickoff of China GDP, 6.7% for Q2. Your comment to me in the email was, surprise, surprise, it had been 6.8 for three months. Mm. They dropped it a 0.1. <clears throat> I mean, the degree of manufactured, we're not sure. At one point, I mean, it's a big number for a big mm. economy. It is a big number, but, <clears throat> excuse me, but you have to, um, I think, put it in context where, I mean, anyone, South Africa would cry for 6.7 oh. or 6.8% <laughs> growth. But um, China seems to manage the expectations really, really well. I mean, there's a lot of cynics out there that's, that think this is a little bit manufactured. Um, but the one thing that became evident to those, much as China is, is growing, um, it's not growing as fast as it was. And I think that the, if these trade wars escalate, certainly this, the second half is going to be a very different picture. 
and China perhaps more threat because they're obviously sending a lot more to America than America to China. Very much so. And in fact, some analysts are saying anywhere between a quarter to a half percent of that GDP number, which would put it down at lower sixes. So I think that is the, that is the real problem is, is that China could possibly, after so many years of, of just staggering growth, might finally be starting to slow. Um, and, and, and as the second biggest economy in the world, it's something we're going to take yeah, on itself. Yeah, second biggest economy in the world. Six percent is a giant number, giant. but the market would hate it. It would hate it. And in, and in fact, in fact, for years, the Chinese has been the one that's been, been dragging emails through. Every time it was, we went through from 2008, the crash, etc., yeah, yeah. everyone's looking to China and saying, uh, look, at least they're growing and maybe they'll overtake America soon, etc., etc. But now you're seeing a slowdown in China. So I think it's something that investors need to be aware of. Yeah, okay. Ch the changing of the, of, the, of the thought process the last few decades. Results season, we mentioned, I mentioned uh, at City, I mentioned JP Morgan. Mm. Both came out. Uh, uh, Wells Fargo, who really just trying to win back trust after their scams. On the surface, good numbers. I, I got to say, I, I struggle with banks as it is. These American banks, those, those results for me are just massively complex. They're massively complex, and in fact, uh, J.P. Morgan came out, I think it was 108 pages. I mean, you try to go through 108 pages before, uh, before you give feedback to your clients on it. And, and your seven seconds allocated. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the one thing that's been for me is, is these, these banks have been, they've obviously benefited hugely from these tax cuts, and you can sure. see that in the numbers. But when you strip out the, the, the tax breaks they've received, the numbers weren't great. Revenue was actually down from the last quarter. So, I mean, these banks are complex, as you said. Um, and, and again, like the Chinese numbers, they've been manufactured to a certain extent. You know, the old Wall Street game where, where they, they talk down the earnings coming in and then they, they get the beat yeah. you know, from where they were, say, beat two months ago. Exactly, from a few months ago. But interesting enough for me, as being a trader, is that you like looking at the price action. And um, every single one of these banks, bar, I think, JP Morgan, which was slightly up, Citibank was down, Wells Fargo was down off the earnings. I think a lot of this is in the price. I mean, these stocks are priced to perfection right, right now. Yeah, that's a fair point. After a, a very strong 2017 mm. in the market, after a really good Q1 for, for 2018, helped by tax cuts, but what, the best mm. since about 2010 in terms mm. of, of growth for the quarter, expectations are high. Very high. And, and, and for me, that's be the big takeaway, is that, is that everywhere you've read about this, this is going to be a bumper earnings, this is going to be a cracker of a US earnings season. Well, so far... Mm. Yes, they've come in and the stock has sold off, which, which, which tells me to a certain extent that it's baked into the price at the moment. Yeah, and then Netflix, which will be after the close, so not yet. Yeah. Uh, what's that PE? 250-something price earnings. Yeah. I mean, they've got to knock it out the park to, to, to even come close. Yeah, and it's and it's it's quite staggering. I mean, Netflix, one of those the, part of the Fang group of uh, that's been called uh, the Fang group of stocks that have dragged our markets higher and higher um, in the U.S. Um, they've really got to come out with a big beat, and, and they're burning through cash. I mean, we spoke of air; they're burning through three billion dollars per quarter. That's up from two the quarter before. So there's huge expectations in this. And look, they haven't disappointed yet, but at some point. Um, uh, it's a big expectation. It's a big hurdle to climb. It, it's a big hurdle, and that's twelve billion. And that's a billion. A, it, it's a billion a month. Which are we talking real currency? We're talking real currency, dollars, and we yeah. need a lot of subscribers to yeah. make that happen. And truthfully, there. We've talked before about Disney. I know it's a stock you like. It's a yeah. stock I like. They're doing their own platform. They're taking ESPN. They've got their own catalog. Mm. They don't need Netflix because Netflix runs off Amazon servers. I mean, there's nothing clever there. No, and I, and I think let's just see what the earnings do tonight. But I think that that. 
that particular stock is is it might be in for disappointment. In fact, there are two broker notes out today from yeah. some of the big Wall Street houses that said prepare to be a little bit disappointed with the sales numbers. But, and you mentioned the fangs. Uh, reformed uh, broker on Twitter was talking around how the fangs were 97% of S&P. You took it a, a step further in, in a, a, a graphic you put together. Top 10 stocks, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, Netflix, Facebook, uh, uh, MA, uh, MasterCard, Visa, Alphabet, NVIDIA, Adobe, 127% of the return yeah. of the S&P 500. Yeah. Take that one. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It makes our NASPAS exposure. I mean, that, that's 10 out of 500 shares. Staggering, staggering. And I, and I think as, I mean, we, as you said, we moan about our NASPAS being too exposed to one counter. I mean, here you have 10 stocks accounting for over 100% of the S&P move this year. So it really is worth, again, keep on harping back to it. You know, these stocks are priced to perfection, so you've got to be careful. It also means that if you are an active manager, whether you're doing DIY or, or mm. however the case may be, if you miss just a couple of those, you, you're, you're probably up, yeah. but you're not having a particularly fun time of it. No, in a, in a very competitive space. So it, it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies where you almost have to be exposed. If you want to beat your, be beat your benchmark, you have to be long this basket and you, have to, you, have to, you literally have to own it Otherwise, you're underwater compared to your peer group. So it's, it's a difficult play. And there's forward PE. So Apple forward PE at 17. Uh, what have we got? Amazon, 270-odd now at an all-time high. Uh, NVIDIA. I mean, these are not PEs that you look at and are comfortable jumping into. No. This, is, this, is, this is a brave investor who goes in here. It's a brave investor, and I hate to say it. We've kind of seen this story before. If you harp back... Uh, the young folks eight, have no 18 idea what you're of, No, they don't. <laughs> I'm showing our age. But 18 years or so, we've had a similar story. When you started looking at clicks and you started looking at... Now we're looking at uh, viewer numbers on, on Netflix, etc. But it's a big ask. Right now, we, it feels like right now with some of these offshore stocks, we're heading into a point where we're a bit of a turning point. Now, the likes of Tesla, the likes of Netflix, now it's time to see, you know, where's the money coming from? Because you're starting to ask, come back to shareholders more and more. And at some point, it's difficult to raise funds again, especially in a rising interest rate environment. Yeah, the one difference, perhaps, to a degree to, 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 to 18 years ago is that Amazon might be a crazy price, but at least it's got a revenue flow and it's got a business underpinning. It's not Pets.com, whose business model was to sell pet food look cheaper than they bought it themselves, yeah. which is not sustainable. No, true, true. It's, it's, not, it's not that environment. Or maybe I'm exaggerating slightly, but, but there's certainly, it does feel like we're at a point now where we're heading into a rising interest rate environment. Um, all of a sudden, short-dated cash offshore is becoming an asset class on its own, and you've got these companies that we're speaking about, these fangs that are trading on exorbitant PEs who are burning through cash. At some point, I'm going to have to go over to the market and say, we need more money. Yeah. Well, now investors have a choice. They don't have to chase these stocks. Yeah, you don't have to. And <clears throat> can be the best company in the world. But at, yeah, Amazon at 276 forward PE, mm. it, it needs to be way better than best. It's Let's best, go back yeah. to some numbers. PepsiCo mm. uh, came out, salty snacks, saving the day, yeah. um, competing against Coca-Cola, others, but those are the big competition. Mm. PepsiCo sort of moved into the snack and, mm. and, and, and I think it's what they call the third one, the healthy division, which yeah. is like flavored water ahead of Coca-Cola seems like a good move, but I'm still not convinced. And big, and big. Uh, funny enough, a lot of the revenue, a lot of the profit coming from the emerging market space. So yeah. apparently we like our salty stacks and nachos, <laughs> et cetera, as well. Yes, it, 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 um, the, the consumer's sort of taste is changing. And you've seen with the likes of Coca-Cola going into the sort of bottled water space and, and the vitamin waters, et cetera. Um, it's definitely a changing market, and they're having to adapt accordingly. But these numbers are interesting because... 
Apparently, us lot in emerging markets still like our salty snacks. Yeah, Cheritos and the other ones, which, to be honest, I don't know if I've ever had them. The <laughs> one issue, I remember a, 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 a leaked document from, and I don't know if it was Coca-Cola or PepsiCo, about 15 years ago, when they were talking about water, and they were looking forward and saying, you know, we are a drying planet in terms of consumption versus, versus availability of water and how they were going to mitigate. Is that something that one worries about, or is that far into the future, and much like with... British American tobacco, we can worry about it in time. They'll manage it for now. They'll manage it for now. But you know, Simon, it's actually, it's quite funny because compared to tap water, I'm just taking the South African mm-hmm. example, um, a bottled water compared to the South African cost per litre of water is roughly a thousand times markup. So it's a remarkable business. And, and lo- a lot of people say this bottled water is one of the biggest cons we've ever seen. Um, not to say that we are not worrying about water. Look at Cape Town, mm-hmm. for example. But it's a huge part of the industry, and it's got massive, massive margins. I remember when Perrier was sold in glass bottles, and only the very, very elite drank it. We didn't even, like, look at the yes, Perrier with your, with your stuff. silver Amex card on the side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, before we go to break, Groupon, uh, if people forget, spam your inbox with emails you can't unsubscribe from. Listed uh, seven years ago, I forgot it was so long ago, yeah. at, at crazy valuations. And now, basically, they're trying to group on themselves, like you know, anyone, you know, anyone out there. I mean, I suppose their value perhaps was that they had a big mailing list. But again, no barriers to entry, just, no moats. It just shows you at how quickly this is called this tech disruptive space changes. Here's a company which listed at, at 13 odd billion dollars on its IPO. It's currently sitting at last night's closing price of, of, a, of a NAV of two billion, so it's down 85 odd percent. Um, and then the, you, they're competing directly with, with the giants like the Facebooks, the Google advertising, that space. Um, it's going to be very difficult for it to compete. And I think this is literally a, a, a cry for help. You know, if we can't get it right, someone please buy us. That's a good point because Groupon's claim, one of them was hyperlocal. Uh, that's exactly what Google mm. and Facebook can do. They small know business, exactly where exact, they are. Small business space, looking after that sort of exactly the small business person, which is Groupon space. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Anthony Clark and myself are trying something. We, we keep mentioning gin <laughs> next to our phones to see if we get sent, sent any. And it, it's like, I mean, Snapchat perhaps falls into it where Snapchat's great, but I mean, the, the other one, Instagram yeah. just keeps on copying them. Um, Instagram, obviously not listed. They've got Facebook as a parent, and you look at Snapchat and you say, you could be gone in, in, in a year or five and just disappear. Very much so. As much as this tech disruptive space is changing a lot of the way we do things in our world, your, your barrier of entry is so low until the next big thing comes along. So from a, from a, from a, a consumer point of view, it's great. From a shareholder's point of view, it's so difficult to find out what is going to be the next best thing. Groupon's a case in point. They've missed it. Yeah, they absolutely have. And, and, and yeah, betting the next best thing is not an easy game. We're going for a short break. When we come back, we'll take a look at the Peregrine Global Multi-Strategy Equity Fund with Younger Nadia. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio, Nick Kunz from Bridge Stockbrokers. Joining us on the line to discuss the Peregrine Global Multi-Strategy Equity Fund is Yolanda Nordea. Yolanda, thank you very much for your time this evening. Let's kick off. It's a fund of fund, which means what you what you and your team are essentially doing is, is interrogating other funds to put into your, your, your fund overall and giving a, an investor a sort of one stop into the many different underlying funds. That's correct, Simon. Our aim with this fund is to have it style neutral and benchmark aware. 
and that is an explicit focus of this fund of funds. So we blend, blend different strategies and different types of managers in order to achieve those two goals. I want to come back to that star neutral because that, that, that interests me a lot. The, the one trick is, immediate thing is, is, is are you able to, to keep costs down when you've got fund managers and, and, and your own selves sitting there? Are you able to manage costs to the investors so that their total expense ratios don't get too out of control? Yeah, what we try to achieve here is to get a total expense ratio below 2%. So that is a 1.25% fee for the fund that the investor pays as an annual management fee. And then we have about 60 to 75 basis points in order to pay for the underlying funds to give the client ultimately a solution where things like, for example, capital gains tax is not an issue because it's handled inside the fund. The, the, the client does not need to switch between funds. For example, we do that on their behalf. So it's, it's security, it's not security selection, it's fund selection, it's style selection, and specifically then manager blending. And that selection process, I imagine, is not just you drop them in an Excel spreadsheet and, and, and sort by performance. You're very much looking at the managers, at their strategies, at their performance, I'm, I'm, I have no doubt, but much more than just that, and particularly looking at their styles so to complement, so you're not skewed towards perhaps a momentum or a valued sort of style. Absolutely correct. So, for example, our anchor fund is the Peregrine Global Thematic Feeder Fund. For that fund, it is all about different themes that the fund managers are able to identify globally. So, for example, current themes would include things like consumer, for example, with our positive on apparel and music streaming and live sporting events, for example, and banks, specifically some regional banks in the U.S. because of the regulatory reforms. And then they also have had a very positive view on tech overall, and that has benefited the fund. So that is a, a thematic fund, which we then blend with something like the Global Greats Fund, which is managed by Citadel employees, very skillful managers, and that's about Fortune 500 top companies, where the manager is blending value, growth, and momentum inside the actual fund. So we have a thematic fund, which we then blend with a manager that can have a value or growth or momentum bias from time to time. And then something, for example, Artisan Global Value Fund, which is at a sizable allocation in the fund managed by Artisan as the main indicator. And that is not a value fund per se, but it's more a quality value manager. So where the manager is then blending, let's say, quality factors like return on equity or return on equity higher than cost of capital, for example, and blending that with factors like low price to book or low price to sell. And the manager is not yet not only buying these companies because they are cheaply priced, he's also looking at the quality element in it. And then the Vanguard Global Enhanced Index Fund is a fascinating, wonderful fund where they're literally aiming to achieve about 1% outperformance over time per annum uh, over and above the index by doing enhanced indexing, exactly as the name indicates. So small deviations over and above the index rates of specific stocks in the index. And that then gives you whatever the, the natural bias of the index is, that is your exposure via that fund. And ultimately, we blend it in an efficient portfolio in order to get to a style neutral 
overall fund. And that blending, that style neutral, the ultimate outcome, obviously lots underlying it, not just funds, but then obviously if we looked through, there would be you know, hundreds of, 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 of individual stocks there. Is this giving us a, a perhaps a lower volatility? Does it give us a, a slight outperformance in terms of it? Because my guest last week was also looking at a, almost trying to get to that style neutral place, whereas in years gone by, it was very much a case of you sort of, you know, you pegged your flag to I'm a value or I'm a momentum. Yeah. That swing seems to be to say, well, let's rather do a blend and let's be neutral. See, if, a, if the ultimate investor is not faced with shorter term returns of quarterly reporting or annual reporting and the investor has time on their side, then you can probably pick one specific style and stick to it. For example, value. But then you have to have 20 years on your time, on your side, and then you can stick it out and you can ride through the volatility. If you don't have that and you have the investor base, for example, that's focused on benchmark returns relative to fund, then one should be careful to have very big, large, specific style biases. So what we do here is we look through into the underlying actual stocks of the individual managers and then assess the style biases of those and then blend it overall up into the, the fund. Because I think it is very, very, very difficult to time specific entry and exit points out of specific style factors. We have seen lots of research international, and, and some would suggest that investors are able to do that. But typically you can say with hindsight we should have seen a specific sector or, or specific style should have done well, but it's very, very tough to do that consistently and getting that right over time. Nick, that's a great point. And I know, I mean, I've been a, a momentum trader and it, it's my default to trading, but there are times when it just doesn't work. And that's fine. I get it. I understand it. I, but oftentimes the client is, you're giving me my return. Where's my return? Yeah, exactly. It's so difficult. The timing aspect is so difficult. Um, Yolanda, evening. It's Nick speaking, yeah? Um, just, just out of interest, I see under your, under your investment policy that you have uh, derivative transactions being undertaken for hedging, etc. Um, I was just just... For my, just my concern was with a big exposure to, to the U.S., over 60% in the portfolio, and obviously U.S. dollar denominated. Um, that hedging that you speak about, is that at the discretion of, of yourself as the advisor, or is it uh, left up to the manager? It's at both levels. I'll give you an example of where it's being done by the underlying manager. For example, the parent global thematic feeder fund, the anchor fund, that's managed by Stenham in London. They hedge their overall fund back to US dollars. So they don't want to have the vagaries of uh, FX markets impacting the fund returns. Uh, are, they, are they based in Sterling, I presume, being in London? Are they based in, it's a global investor, so they invest worldwide, and the fund is a dollar fund. Right. But whenever, let's say, for example, they invest uh, in Europe, other global equity managers, for example, would let the currencies play itself out over time, but they decided many years ago to hedge that back to dollars and to have a constantly hedged back fund. Mm. So that's at the one level where that's happening. None of the other managers do that in, in this fund. And then what we do have is, for example, we have a parent global thematic, uh, parent global multi-strategy equity czar hedged fund. Now what we do there <laughs> is that is an interesting solution for South African investors. In the, the parent global multi-strategy equity US dollar fund, investors invest with dollars. Then what we do, for example, in the czar class fund, it is feeding into the exact same underlying managers that we have in the dollar fund, but we then hedge the overseas dollar exposure back to rands. Mm. 
And that is a fascinating free lunch because you typically invest, you, you, you invest it in dollars, so the fund is priced in dollars, mm. and that currency is yielding about 2% interest rate, and you are hedging that back to the South African rand, which is yielding, let's say, at a cash level at about 7%, so that's a 5 percentage points interest rate differential, and you less the cost of hedging of around 50 basis points per annum, that gives you a so-called free lunch of around 45 to 5% per annum, which you then add on top of your dollar returns. Like a, like a, a mini carry trade we've got here. No, it is. <laughs> it absolutely is. And, and Yolanda, if I understand that correctly, then in essence, I, I'm, I'm taking more sort of a, a, an index value and, and that currency becomes less of an issue to me if I go the, the, the czar route. Absolutely, and when this fund works well, the Zara Edge Fund works particularly well when the rand is appreciating or strengthening mm-hmm. versus the dollar. Obviously, if you hedge back and the rand goes from 12 to 13.50, you will lose out when you measure in rands. So this fund is particularly well placed for environments where the rand appreciating. For example, at the end of last year and into the first quarter of this year, the fund has had a beautiful return, and over, over time, you can add literally five to six percentage points per annum over and above your dollar returns that your fund has. And when you measure that in range, you add that five and a half to six percent in per annum. So it's almost a constant that you can count on unless the person who's doing your currency aging is messing up. But um, naturally, you would expect to have that kind of a buffer where, where you start off. You start your year off where you know that you're going to get on average about five percent of returns in there plus then what you're going to get in dollars if it is a positive. Yeah, so you've almost got your inflation covered. Nick, it's one of the challenges, you know, where we, and I know I do it. I've got Zar, sorry, dollar, and I always bring it back to Zar. Truthfully, I shouldn't. I should leave it in Zar. I should invest it in Zar. And it's, and it's, and it's something you're right. It's a big problem. A lot, of, a lot of people are indoctrinated to think they should hedge or bring it back or return South African. And you actually end up, you end up effectively trading the currency when that's not your job. You know, this, yeah. this is a quite a clever way of doing things. That, uh, yeah, and adding you know, some yield onto it. Yolanda, before we, before we break, uh, uh, 60% into the US, I think your benchmark's probably around the low 50%. Is, is that a, a sort of conscious decision from, from your, your side at, at, at selecting the fund that you want to be a, a little overweight US and, and seemingly a little underweight some of the other regions such as uh, Europe and, and Japan? Simon, I think it's a good question, but I think you've come across this um, in the past perhaps where when you report on a fact sheet, for example, or a MBD, minimum disclosure document on country exposure, it's done on domicile. So it's done on where a specific stock is domiciled and listed on an exchange. But that says very little to nothing about where the revenue for a specific company comes from. So, for example, if you think Apple, Apple is a U.S. listed stock, but it's a global, global share because it is sold everywhere in the world. So, in fact, yes, you're right. On a domicile basis, we have 60% exposed to the U.S., which is about 9 to 10 percentage points higher than the benchmark, which is the MSCI All Country World Index. However, if you look at it not from a domicile perspective, but from a revenue perspective of the underlying companies, that comes down right to about 50%. And then Europe is increasing. Yeah, I mean, country allocation to that point almost becomes obsolete, and it's rather a case of, of actually looking through the numbers and saying, what yeah. currencies are they earning revenue slash profit in? Because you know, domicile the, in, in a globalized environment means little or nothing. Absolutely. But it is hard work to report on those, and it's only done, for example, on systems like Bloomberg, for example, where they collect all the data for you. It's done on a quarterly basis. 
Um, so it's not that often and freely available, but that is actually what we should be looking at. But because that revenue exposure is ultimately what's going to drive the, the profit of a, of a specific firm, not where the share is listed. Yeah, so minimum disclosure documents need an update. Someone speak to, not the FSB, FSCA these days. Uh, that's the show for this week. My thanks to our guests, Nick Kunz from Bridge Stockbrokers, Yolanda Nodia, who's Portfolio Manager and Head of Fund Research at Citadel. Thanks to you for watching. I'll catch you same time next week. Good, good evening.